welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is Dr. Craig Hunter. Craig, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. For the listeners, Dr. Craig Hunter is an aerospace engineer at NASA Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia, with broad research experience in experimental, theoretical, and computational fluid mechanics, aerodynamics, and aeroacoustics. He has developed technology-enabling software tools and analysis methods for computational fluid dynamic simulations, aerodynamic design, and jet noise prediction. In 2008, Craig founded Hunter Research and Technology to create innovative and compelling apps for, the, at that time, the new Apple iPhone, namely Theodolite, ProCompass, and Nav Camera. I remember in 2009, I reviewed Theodolite, and I was blown away. Was yeah, I remember that, too. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about all this stuff, what you're doing at NASA and supercomputers and Macs and, and vector processors and computational fluid dynamics and what you've been doing at NASA and, uh, and your little company, Hunter Research. But before we get into the details, I want to know more about you. I want to learn about how you, what you're doing when you were growing up. I think you said in your bio at one point you were a calculus professor. And then I want to know when that happened and how you got there. So tell me about oh. growing up. Was, was, was it mathematics that turned you on or was it aerospace? Um, really neither. Um, I was always very hands-on mechanical as I was growing up. And I think that led me to go into mechanical engineering as a major in college. And... Um, Turns out mechanical engineering is very, very wide. It covers stuff like boilers and, you know, engines and motors and mechanisms and um, aerodynamics. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and it gets into thermodynamics and uh, fluid flow and, you know, how airplanes fly. It just covers so Steam much. Steam cycles. So all that, yeah. And I think once I got, I got into it for the mechanical stuff, but... Um, kind of got really interested in the fluid flow and the aerodynamics and I've really focused down in that area. So so a lot of times people meet me and know I'm a find out I'm a mechanical engineer and they think I can tell them how to, you know, design a, a, a tool or a machine and I probably could do that, but you know, my strengths now, my focus is really in the fluid flow and aerodynamics uh, part of that. Were you growing up during the Apollo era? Was that an influence on you? No, I was I was born a couple months after Apollo 11. If I well, now wait a minute. I was born in '69, so I guess that was before 11. But I so I was I was born, you know, uh, kind of when that was all unfolding. Um, And I didn't really get interested in space stuff until space shuttle was flying, and I was you know um, probably middle school age. and, and that was really my first uh, intro to space. And, of course, everybody back then was thought the space shuttle was really cool. Yeah, I had a chance to work as a summer intern at NASA Houston for a couple summers. Got to fly in the SMS simulator. Mm-hmm. It was just awesome. Working for NASA is amazing. We'll get into that in a little more in a minute. Um, so you were talking about computational fluid dynamics. That is tough work. I know a little bit about that. It's like a stab in the eye. I mean, computational fluid dynamics is mostly nonlinear differential equations. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, the um, f- 
fluid flow is governed by a set of equations we call the Navier-Stokes equations, and they're oh, yeah. really nonlinear, really complicated. If you were trying to figure out, if you were looking for an easy way to solve a differential equation set, this would be the opposite of all of those. <laughs> I know, I know. So um, I ran across those when I was at Apple working with you. Yeah, and there are very few cases where you can solve the equations mathematically, so we almost always simulate them. Uh, you know, which means uh, supercomputers and coming up with models of geometries and things, and it, so it's it's always you're either measuring it in flight or wind tunnel or you're simulating on, on a, a supercomputer. That's pretty much how we, we, we're doing things nowadays. Is that what you got your doctorate in? Um, my doctorate was using computational fluid dynamics or CFD mm -hmm. using, using that to predict the noise from jets, which could be, you know, jet engines, rockets, anything that creates a plume behind it. You can simulate that with CFD, and then you could run that CFD simulation through another code to predict how noisy it's going to be. And that's where my uh, doctoral research was, was focused. Now you got me curious. Where does the noise come from from a jet engine? Does it come from the rotors or the casing, or does it come from the actual plume where it's igniting? Those are all different components. In fact, there's people who study the front end, which would be the noise coming out of the fan. Like, say, if it's a typical turbofan engine on an airplane you'd fly on a jet, you'll, you'll get noise coming out the front, which is fan noise, and that's combination of machinery noise and uh, flow noise and the noise of blades hitting the air at a certain frequency. And then uh, you've got the jet noise coming out the back, which is where I focused. And I know airliners don't have afterburners, but as I recall from the Air Force, when you kick in the afterburner, all of a sudden there's a lot more heat and noise and thrust, and there's a lot more sound. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in, in the afterburner, you're pretty much just dumping fuel into the uh, exhaust nozzle, and it, it ignites. That must be really you know, complicated to model. Yeah, and I, thankfully, I, I didn't do any afterburner noise. Uh, I was mainly just focusing on the, just the basic. You didn't anything hard thing. enough to start with, did you? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we said uh, fluid dynamics is hard. Jet noise is another one of those areas that's just very hard. They, they, they started trying to predict jet noise in the 1950s when they had some breakthroughs. And all these years later, jet noise is still very hard to do. Um, so it's just it's like two combinations of hard things to to work to work on that I kind of got wrapped into doing. You mentioned in one of your blogs that you were an ex-calculus professor. Did you do that after you got your doctorate? I did that uh, before. Um, I'm trying to think, there was there was a period where you, you, they call it ABD. It's all but oh, dissertation, where you're just kind of wandering and you know, <laughs> yeah, wasting time and um, taking qualifying exams. Yeah, and I had I had just finished the qualifying exams. And that was about a six month process of studying and taking taking tests, and that was tough. And uh, that kind of burned me out. And so um, I just sent a letter to uh, the math uh, department chair at uh, the College of William and Mary, which is here in Williamsburg. And I said, hey, you know, you got any courses I could teach? I love calculus. I love other math. You know, is there anything I could teach? And he, he, he 
wrote back like right away and said, yeah, I'm looking for adjunct professors. When can you start? And um, that was a great opportunity. I'll, I'll always be grateful for them uh, for letting me do that. And then I ended up teaching there for five years uh, while I was finishing my dissertation. And uh, it was a great experience, a lot of fun. And it actually delayed me finishing my dissertation. But in the meantime, by teaching math and teaching calculus, I was making breakthroughs I needed for my dissertation. So I think in the end, it was a very good thing to do and very good relationship to have, you know, going at the same time. I went through the same thing. I didn't really learn some elements of physics until I was teaching them as a PhD student. Mm -hmm. You really get to know stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, I got to relearn stuff that I already used every day in the job, but by teaching it, you just get this very deep understanding, and it was, it was great. It, it, it benefited me as much as the students, I think. So what came after that, after you graduated? Um, so I finished my dissertation in 2002, and that was nine years after I started working on my doctoral degree, by the way. That's, oh, that's a good lesson for young that's people. That's ridiculously long. Yeah, uh, it takes a long time to get a PhD. One has yeah. to be really ready for the long haul. Oh, yeah. And, and I think in 97, I had started working for NASA. So that was another delay. But, uh, you know, I, I think if someone was serious, they could knock it out in three or four years easily. But I guess I took the nine-year plan. And um, yeah, so I was support working at NASA simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That helps quite a bit. Although people who go to work sometimes get distracted and have trouble finishing their Ph.D. There's a lesson there, too. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was all everything was so mixed together. I mean, the, the research I was doing for my doctoral thesis was relevant to NASA and would have, you know, went on to be picked up and used by NASA. So it was a big salad of work and research and, and dissertation, but, uh, you know, it all, it all worked out good in the end. And so, um, even before I finished my dissertation, that work, that jet noise prediction work was already being used in, in some NASA programs. And so I kind of just kept going with it and transitioned into, uh, applying it to NASA projects. So this was about the time that we got to know each other kind of indirectly, about the time the G4 came out and Richard Crandall and Jason Clevington were doing cool stuff mm -hmm. up in the Vancouver office in Washington State. And I was visiting them and doing SciTech promotion and I became aware of you doing some interesting work at NASA and uh, you've been doing that for a long time kind of like the apple of apple's eye <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i was i was fortunate I, I so like when i was in college in the late 80s and early 90s uh we only had like one mac it was in the industrial engineering department and um every once in a while i'd need to do something that you couldn't do on a pc and i'd go up and use that mac and I thought it was pretty neat, but we mostly use PCs in the uh, mechanical engineering department. And then I came down to NASA, and NASA is a mix of, you know, really Mac, PC, Unix, Linux. It's pretty much whatever you need to get the job done. But when I came down to NASA in 1991, 
the branch that I started working in, they, they had a couple Macs and they were shared Macs. They were on a desk in the corner that everybody kind of took turns using. This was before Mac uh, OS when it was Unix, right? Uh, that, no, that was, uh, so that was early, um, that would have been early Mac OS, like seven, six, seven, I guess, probably, um, the classic Mac OS. Right. Um, right. yeah. And, 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 uh, so we, we got to the point in the late nineties, I guess, where pretty much everybody now had a Mac on their desk, but we also still had a Unix workstation. And we needed both machines. You couldn't do both things on any one of them. Um, but when Mac OS X came out, all of a sudden, you know, I was like, wow, this is one, this is an operating system that's going to let me do everything on one machine. And um, we just saw a huge opportunity to replace our dual computer setup on everybody's desk and go with this one machine. And so we started putting more effort into developing and, and basically porting our scientific software and develop, developing it on the Mac. Um, and back then, you know, when Mac OS X first came out, there weren't Fortran compilers. They were just starting from scratch. So all that was new and just growing. But uh, by the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s, things were on a roll and, and Mac was, you know, working out great. Um, because of OS 10 and, and the Unix base. Yeah, and, and at that time, I don't remember exactly, but, excuse me, <clears throat> at that time, I think the Mac was ahead of the PCs in terms of vector processors. Since then, uh, the PCs have caught up. Intel has caught up. Yeah, they went back and forth for a while. The, um, the G4 was outstanding if you could vectorize your code. Not everything could be vectorized, and then even if you could, it had to be run single precision, and that may or may not have been useful. Like a lot of CFD, we, we have to use double precision because um, a lot of the numbers we're working with are so small, you, you have no choice. But, um, you know, I did what I could with single precision, um, and there, we did a lot of work with AltaVec on the G4 looking at parts of the code that could be single precision and vectorizing them. And that code was usually written in C and we'd link it back in with our Fortran um, main programs. And, you know, we were seeing good speed benefits out of that. It was, it was impressive. And, and I think at the time, you know, we were seeing performance out of the G4 that was matching what we'd get on the supercomputer, um, which was pretty awesome. But, you know, eventually the G4 started plateauing, um, and then finally the G5 came out. That was another huge breakthrough. Uh, that had a lot more capability for double precision. That had just very good scalar performance. So even if you couldn't vectorize, it was very fast. So that was that was a big deal when when the G5 hit. Did you ever meet Dr. Crandall? Uh, never in person. We talked on the phone. Uh, all the time. Like there was a few years, uh, probably in the 2000 to 2004 period, uh, where I collaborated with his group. He sent uh, someone out to visit us at NASA and sit with us for a week. And um, was that Jason Clevington? Just curious. I don't think so. I've to, to look back at my notes to see who it was. Um, but 
we, me and Richard did a lot of work through email and talked on the phone all the time. And he had some very critical inputs to helping me vectorize some code that, you know, I had looked at and I did not see a way to vectorize it. And he, he looked at it and he's like, well, you know, you can replace this with an approximation. <laughs> and then all of a sudden that code is easily vectorizable. And, and, you know, I tried it and sure enough, it worked. And I found out ways where it didn't quite work, but for the most part, it worked well. And it was, it was a definite breakthrough. So there were a lot of cases, you know, just by having frequent phone calls with him and him looking at the, the math and the equations and the code, um, where, where together we were able to make some really, really nice breakthroughs. For the listeners, Dr. Crandall uh, was in the Vancouver, Washington office and was sort of like the advanced research director for special projects. So when Steve Jobs needed something done in a uh, music app or vectorization or some special security code or whatever, he'd go to Dr. Crandall and Dr. Crandall would do his magic, pull a rabbit out of a hat. He was great. He's no longer with us, regrettably. Yeah, and you know, I've since learned he's he's got a lot of code that went into the iPhone and iOS. Uh, I'm sure it's still being used today. Uh, so he he had impacts, you know, present day, and 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 even all these years after he passed away, he's you know, I'm sure his code is still having major impacts. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, we got to continue this discussion after a break. I'm talking to NASA aerospace engineer, Dr. Craig Hunter. But first, we need to take a special uh, commercial break. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Charlotte Henry with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Macmore, simply go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter www.macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and all our other affiliate partners. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their way. Pretty cool, right? And even better, you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos and podcasts just like this one. So, the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, please do come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with NASA's Dr. Greg Hunter. It sounds like you've been a Mac nutcase ever since that time. Tell me about some of the Macs you've had in the meantime. Did you did you graduate to a black cylinder? Um, I, I had uh, a couple of those at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still have one, actually, that I... Uh, I keep off to the side. There's a lot of stuff I need to do that's like off the network, not managed, not interrupted by patching, which happens a lot in NASA now. So uh, that's that one machine that sits off the network for, for those special cases. So I had a couple of those. Many of the previous Mac Pros, you know, the cheese grater models, we call them. In fact, I still have one, a 12 core uh, machine. Uh, that first time was very fast, and even today, it's it's a great low-cost machine. Uh, so if I need to run a case, 
and test it for parallel computing. I'll often use that uh, that older Mac Pro, and I think that's a 2012 model. It'll run forever. It's yeah, I think it will. So well. <laughs> yeah, I think it will. Um, and then I think from the from the cylindrical Mac Pros, the black ones, uh, both at home and at work, I went to the iMac Pro. Um, I have an 18-core unit at home and then a 10-core unit at, at NASA. And those have been great machines, probably my favorite Macs of all time, I think. Wow, an iMac Pro, glorious. At the, here at the Mac Observer, we're starting to get a little worried about the iMac Pro because it came out in December of 17, and there hasn't been an upgrade, mm-hmm. uh, hardly any changes mm-hmm. since. And we're wondering what Apple's going to do next with the iMac Pro, if anything. Yeah, I'd be curious. I don't, I don't have any idea how um, popular it is with sales. I mean, I think in my community it's very popular. Uh, I love the idea of it. You're getting much higher class of computing performance in that, you know, great iMac design uh, with the the built-in screen. I mean, that's it's it's an easy easy to live with desktop computer with uh you know great great hardware performance um so i would hope they're going to continue it I, I mean it seems like a lot of this stuff is dependent on getting breakthrough jumps in performance from intel and uh it could be that's what they're waiting on um i i, I don't know but i i hope they continue because i think it's a it's a great uh, system Tell me about some of the research projects, if you can, that aren't classified, done on the Mac Pros. Um, gosh, it, it's pretty much, I, you know, I used to be able to say I, like for aircraft stuff, I used to be able to specialize in a certain thing. But um, in the last 10 or 15 years, I mean, I've looked at uh, airplanes, rockets, stuff that's low speed, high speed, stuff that flies in the atmospheres of, you know, Mars. Uh, it's just everything. We're, we're my, my branch at NASA, we're the configuration aerodynamics branch, and we're just called on to look at the aerodynamics of just really anything that flies anywhere. So um, you do CFD on the airfoils of things like winged bodies and yep, yep. like that? Yeah, and... Um, Mostly, mostly, most of the stuff I look at is the full aircraft configuration and the whole thing, um, um, including engines if, if if it has them and they might be running. Um, and that's one of the, I guess, modern enabling things about CFD is we can really look at the whole airplane now and uh, do do stuff that you know you couldn't easily do with an experiment, whether it's a tunnel experiment or a flight test. Um, it might be unsafe or it might be expensive. Well, we can simulate in CFD and have high confidence in the answers. So, um, really, the projects have spanned just just a- anything that flies in, anywhere in the solar system, more or less. So, supercomputers have gotten really fast lately. You mentioned earlier in the show that. When the G4 came out, it might be in the uh, top 500 list. Not anymore. Uh, do you guys have a petaflop class computer there at NASA Langley? Um, you know, I don't. I don't know the the specs of our local machine. We have a, a, a cluster at Langley. Uh, the the main machines I run on are out at NASA Ames in California. Um, 
and and that's that's where NASA has its main computing facility that mm-hmm. everybody from all you know across the country logs into, and um, they've got they've got machines out there that are always in the you know top twenty or top one hundred supercomputers, um, and so I tend to run on on those machines for most of my work. You've got a lot of experience in programming and uh, app development. So in two thousand eight, you formed a little company. Mm-hmm. Why did you do that? Tell me about that. You know, that was that was a very random thing. I um, I was I forget what I was doing. I was doing yard work or some project, something really low tech, stupid. And I I kept thinking, boy, I wish I had a you know a device that could make this measurement for me. And and then I realized, well, wait a minute, the iPhone's got accelerometer. Um, it's, it's got these sensors. It's 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 got a, a processor that I can run computations on. It, it started to dawn on me that I could do some of this stuff with an iPhone app, and that was uh, that was probably a month or two before the App Store opened. So yeah, I just an Objective C to do that at the time. Right? You know, I had known a little bit of it before then because some of our software for CFD that we wrote at NASA. Uh, uses Objective C and it uses Xcode and and uh, it's a it's a it's a Mac app. So I started learning that you know maybe around 2003 2004, more in a scientific slant. So I can't say I was like an you know an app person, but at least I knew Objective C. And so you know when when the iPhone software development kit came out. It wasn't too hard for me to figure it out and start cranking cranking out apps. And uh, your first app was Theodolite, which I think I reviewed in two thousand nine for the Mac Observer, and I was very impressed. I think that was my first successful app. I had many before then. The very first one was called G Meter, and uh, it was a performance meter for sports cars. You could mount it in your car, calibrate it. And then drive around, and it would tell you how fast you were going, give you like zero to sixty times, uh, cornering G-forces. Oh, perfect for car uh, and driver braking. Yeah, and and actually, back in that day, you could spend like three or four hundred bucks and buy this little box that did all those things. But that's all it did. And you know, the iPhone came along. Well, it had a you know multi-axis accelerometer, and it had a computer that could keep up with 100 hertz of data coming in from the accelerometer and uh you know it, it could do that function and, and so that was my f- the first easy idea is like oh i should make a app that replaces these little boxes and and uh, uh that one turned out to be that was a very successful app right off the bat i mean the first month it sold thousands of, of copies wow. uh Back then, I was, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I was, and back then, you could price an app at $12, and people were snapping them up, so, <laughs> you know, I went from sitting on the sofa with a laptop at night to making, like, $15,000 in a month, and thinking, wow, this is a big deal. Wow. Um, Did you have to get a waiver from NASA, because normally, the government yes. says, we own what you develop. Right, yeah, I had to fill out paperwork, it's like an outside employment agreement, and you know, they would get first dibs on any patents I file. I haven't filed any patents. I mean, I'm not considering these to be inventions or anything. But yeah, I had to disclose all that to NASA. 
uh, just to be open about it. And, and they were fine. Are they still selling well today? The apps? Yeah. So G-Meter had a peak uh, maybe around 2010 or 11, and then it kind of faded. And I had uh, did the Autolite in 2009. Uh, that was that one exploded. Now that one started out at 99 cents, and so I left a ton of money on the table by just not pricing that realistically. Uh, you know, now all these years later, years later, it's up to uh, eight dollars. Um, but in, in the time since, so, so that, that app kind of rode the gold rush of, of apps when people were just buying more and more apps. Um, and that, that gold rush really lasted till about 2013. And then I think we started to maybe hit market saturation uh, for the iPhone. And I saw very interesting trends both with sales and unit sales and dollars and rankings, sales rankings, that suggested to me that app sales were really cooling off. Uh, now, in that same time frame, game sales were still exploding, and I think games are still a big thing today. But yeah, those are leveling off a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, but you know, I, I definitely saw this trend of paid apps kind of hitting their peak, and then slowly coming back down and so was there some point where you were making big money you thought you could retire from nasa and become a oh, yeah. software engineer <laughs> well and you decided not to luckily uh yeah I'm, I'm i guess i'm conservative and i like working for nasa but i decided it, i i thought it would be good to keep my day job <laughs> but good if move. i had if i had been smart maybe around 2011 i would have left nasa uh, because I was doing apps for other companies. I was selling my own apps. It was a big business. I was farming out work to other developers. Um, and that would have been the time if I was going to jump and take a leap and build a big business. You know, 2011 would have been the time. And uh, I just didn't. And I, I guess I didn't really have the thirst for that. I, I just was happy having two jobs every I, I like my NASA work I like developing apps it was fun um, you know I just kind of stayed in that happy zone and I'm still there today um, so I guess nothing's really changed except I'm not an app uh, bazillionaire at this point so recently you made a big splash again for Apple they saw fit to loan you a new 2019 Mac Pro a $31,000 computer. Yeah. And you wrote a nice review of it, and especially the uh, focusing on CFD and the Linpack ex performance. Tell me a little bit about your experience with that Mac Pro. The, the new one is an amazing machine. Even, I mean, as soon as I unpacked it, I was blown away. The, the case, the aluminum case, it's very complicated machining. Uh, you know, as an engineer, I look at that and I'm like, wow, they had to use different tools and different plunge angles to cut these, this lattice grill in the front and the back. Um, even if I didn't turn it on, I was just in love with the, the, the design of it and the metal work. And it, it was just, it's just a great looking machine. It's very serious looking, but also beautiful. Uh, you know, it's, it's just like, it's like industrial artwork basically to me. Um, and then you plug it in and, you know, you start it up and it's behaves like a regular Mac, but it's, it's a very capable system. 
and probably the quietest, coolest system I've tested in terms of this high capability. I mean, it's, it's super powerful, but you could have it sitting on your desk and it would not bother you if you were running, you know, CFD simulation. It's, it's that quiet and that cool. Back to the so, cheese grater, uh, the serious chunk of metal with great cooling. Yeah, this one, this one looks like it could grate other metal. I mean, this <laughs> one is serious-looking machine. So what uh, kind of performance did you get out of it? You know, I tend to think in terms of, well, there's a couple things I look at. I look at, like, focus benchmarks like LinPack solves uh, linear algebra systems. And, uh, That's what, for the listeners, LinPack is what we use to, or what you guys use to test the performance of supercomputers, standard, mm-hmm. suite, standard suite of linear algebra packages. So when a supercomputer announces that it has achieved 100 petaflops, it's using that LinPack package. Yeah, yeah. And so, the, but that was the first thing I ran. That, that gave uh, one and a half teraflops. Uh, and that's the first, that's the first machine I tested, like a desktop machine that exceeded one teraflop. I think the, the iMac Pro, um, the 18 core, that topped out at just under one teraflop. And so the Mac Pro, you know, jumped way past that to one and a half. And that was impressive. Um, and then I started running some CFD benchmarks on it. And, I, you know, so the LinPack is great for an ideal benchmark. It's impressive. You can compare it to supercomputers and other computers. Um, but it solves an unrealistically simple set of equations. Like, like you'd never, well, at least, at least in my world of CFD, you'd never be that lucky to have something that's that <laughs> easy to vectorize, parallelize, you know, cut up into, into easy pieces. So... LinPack is very ideal. So I ran uh, a CFD code, one of our CFD codes, uh, USM3D, on a simple wing. And just to give you an idea, you know, so LinPack can go up to 1.5 teraflops and really exploit the, the architecture. CFD, because it's so complicated, because we're using the disk, we're communicating between all the cores frequently. Um, we're hitting the memory, we're moving memory back and forth. Uh, CFD, I only got 90 gigaflops out of uh, the Mac Pro. And that's not a, anything against the Mac Pro. That's just saying, well, now here's a problem that's not easy to vectorize, not easy to parallelize. Well, any other Hewlett Packard with a Xeon processor would be in the same boat, right? So Exactly, exactly, exactly. No but, problem there. But, but I like the CFD because to me, okay, this is a real benchmark. It matters to me. It matters to my work. And it showed that it was, you know, the Mac Pro was about 30% faster than the iMac Pro. So that's a big benefit right there. How does it compare to the 2013 Mac Pro? Oh gosh, I don't have that number in my head, but uh, it's not ten times faster. Maybe twice as fast. Oh, it's more than twice. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite a bit, quite a bit faster. Okay. Um, yeah, the, those the older machines definitely had their their peak, and we've moved with, like even the iMac Pro kills the old uh, older Mac Pros. So recently, you blogged a little bit about calculus because you have a strong background. And the growth of COVID-19, you were a blog on that. Tell me about that. 
kind of technical, but it was kind of cool. Yeah, that one, you know, we're getting some amazing data back uh, as, as we're tracking uh, coronavirus. And back when I was teaching calculus and differential equations, one of the things we always modeled was uh, things that used exponential growth. It could be population growth, um, spread of a virus. There are just many, many processes in biology and physics and the world around us that follow exponential models. Um, and the virus is one of the, one of them. And so as we're seeing this data come in, I was, I've always been, you know, looking at it and watching the news and, and seeing the data. And, um, it struck me that they're they're plotting it a certain way. They're using a log curve or log scale, I should say, on their their plots. And the log scale gives a very nice, simple summary of the data. But there's there's so much more in in that data that you kind of lose with a log scale. And so uh, one of the things I did in this blog post was kind of step through that data. It started with uh, data from uh, New York State for basically about the past. Um, uh, 50 days um, started out with a log plot and then converted to a linear plot and talked about the difference and then started playing in some calculus to look at the nuances and, and variations in the data that you don't see with with some of these simpler plots um, oh, and that's it was what was cool about it yeah, it's cool. That, you know, you get this smooth-looking curve that, that everybody understands, and it makes sense. But it, you take a derivative of it with calculus, and all of a sudden you see a lot more detail emerge. And the you start out looking at the number of infections over time. When you take a derivative of that, that's really the rate of infections like per day. And um, you can you know manipulate that data just with very very basic calculus and uh, get to a curve that has a lot of dynamic information in it. But the thing that just jumped out at me and smacked me in the face was I can see this very nice downward trend in the rate of infections in New York State when we started doing uh, social distancing and, and having people stay at home. It's just like this pattern just popped out at me like, wow, you know, if, if you want any mathematical indication that this was working it, it just pops out in in that graph uh and i thought that was really cool to see yeah yeah very nice i'll put the link to that blog in the show notes and you're going to do some more right uh you know what i'll probably do is revisit this in 30 more days and okay. and repeat the repeat the math and the graphing um and see how we're doing see how we did see I, and i kind of threw out a few simple assumptions here and I'll see if those assumptions held up as we go forward. Cool. Well, guess what? We're out of time, Craig. Wow. All right. That went quick. Yeah, that did. There's a, a lot of stuff to chat about. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing with me. It's been like old times. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I, I, I've enjoyed it and, uh, and, and appreciate uh, the opportunity. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they even have some questions about the show or if they want to find out more about uh, your uh, apps for the, um, for the iPhone. Yeah. The best way, uh, best way is go to my website. It's hrtapps.com. And uh, you can read about 
my work there and uh, contact me uh, from the website. That's where your blog is too, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's been great. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Well, thank you. Folks, you've been listening to Dr. Craig Hunter, NASA Aerospace Engineer, and John Martellaro. Well, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.